When Pat Dorsey spoke with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on his podcast, there was something about it that I really liked. There was something that appealed to me, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. So I started to do some digging and some research, and after watching half a dozen YouTube videos of Dorsey and reading some interview transcripts, I think I figured it out, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Dorsey is the founder of Dorsey Asset Management. Before that, he was director of research for Sanibel Captiva Trust. And before that, he was director of equity research for Morningstar. And it was through these experiences, I think, that have led Dorsey to crystallize this understanding about companies, to develop his framework for where he wants to invest and why he wants to invest in those things. I think Dorsey's philosophy comes down to two big ideas. Find companies he understands that have a moat and make sure those companies are led by efficient capital allocators. This idea of compounding capital has become clearer to me after re-listening to some of Brent B. Shore's interviews. Now I realize that each marginal dollar I invest into an index fund needs to earn more than any entrepreneurial venture I could make. Dorsey takes his approach to business. He wants to find a few businesses that can deploy his capital better than he can. The businesses that do that best are the ones with substantial castles and moats and wise capital allocators. Dorsey explains his start this way, quote, I form the intellectual framework that we use to evaluate companies. A big part of that is a focus on competitive advantage or an economic moat. I became interested in that topic because some companies essentially defy economic gravity and manage to maintain high returns on capital despite competition. It's a fascinating topic because economic theory suggests that all companies should revert to the mean over time. In another talk, he says, quote, Absent a moat, competition destroys excess returns, period, full stop, end quote. We include that song in the podcast, which took a surprisingly long time to figure out how to put it in there. But we include that song because it points out what Dorsey is trying to tell us. He's trying to say that you want companies that can escape uh, gravity. You want companies that can avoid mean reversion. You want companies that avoid alpha erosion. At thewaiterspad.com, that's what we call this idea, alpha erosion. And I like how Astro's manager, Jeff Luno, uh, said on the Wharton Moneyball podcast, quote, at this point, this is circa 2016, if you look at the transitions in the front offices, all 30 teams, for the most part, have analytical teams. They have general managers that have spoken about the importance of using information in decision-making. The advantage you can gain from doing the moneyball approach has dissipated. It's now a level playing field. We are all looking for the next area of advantage. The reality is whoever wins the World Series, teams try to copy them, end quote. So anytime you get an edge, it will attract capital. That's Dorsey's point, that if you are in a business and you see a competitor succeeding and having good margins and having uh, good revenue and good net income, if you see all of those things, you're going to be attracted to it. 
and that's good for consumers, but it's bad for business owners. You avoid alpha erosion by having an advantage that is fundamental to the business. And Dorsey says it takes a lot of work to find these. Quote, think of research like a radioactive half-life. The half-life of someone's opinion of what the Fed will do is about 20 nanoseconds. The half-life of what unemployment will be next year is about 10 nanoseconds. But the half-life of a report where you learn something about a business, you can then apply to the next business you learn about, has a lot longer life, end quote. And in that same uh, conversation presentation, he said this, quote, At the end of the day, what makes an investor great isn't only discipline and patience, but also pattern recognition. It's knowing a lot of businesses and being able to say, this one kind of looks like that one I looked at last year, end quote. What Dorsey spoke about with Patrick O'Shaughnessy was the value of going there, of talking to people. In a... Um, YouTube video where it looked like he was just talking with a classroom of high school kids, he made the point to them to say that you can win stock picking competitions if you do just a little bit of work. And sometimes that little bit of work just means going to visit a place. Like if you're going to do research on a uh, restaurant chain, go to that restaurant and talk to the manager there and then go to a second one. And that might be all the work you need to do. At Dorsey's level, he has to go further and farther and deeper because he's not in a stock-picking competition with false finish lines. He's, this is his livelihood. This is, what, um, this is what he said, quote, You can't understand a business unless you sit in the customer's shoes, and the best way to sit in their shoes is to go talk to them, end quote. And then um, in another uh, instance, he said, quote, In the case of Chegg, we did an online survey of 800 students across the country, end quote. You gotta get off your rear end and work the phone, he says. You have to talk to people. You have to go to conferences. You have to ask salesmen or salespeople why they're making an investment in Facebook versus somewhere else. And you have to do these things, uh, Dorsey says, because much of the quantitative information is already priced in. This would have been a great vein for Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Pat Dorsey to go down, and maybe they will the next time. But O'Shaughnessy, from what I can gather, is a very quantitative investor. He follows his models, whereas Dorsey is very qualitative. Um, uh, this is what he says, quote, qualitative insight comes from sending out 30 emails and getting one back. It comes from getting out to trade shows and talking to people. That's how you add value, end quote. And so that's why Dorsey is looking for these moats with intelligent capital allocators. He thinks this is an unexplored area. There's uh, lots of opportunities here. There's not much competition. So unlike a market where excessive returns are seen, and it attracts competition, Dorsey believes he's in an area right now that doesn't have that same kind of competition. And his thinking has evolved over time, where at first he was really focused on finding a moat, and now he admits that his emphasis to finding good management has increased over time, or at least it's taken a larger percentage of what he thinks is interesting in a business. The thing that Dorsey, I believe, comes back to. The big idea here is, can you raise prices? If something is fungible where you can switch one thing for another, there's no pricing power. If I can switch to something else that delivers value, there's no pricing power, like the car I drive or the clothes I wear. Dorsey has done a lot of research on airline 
um, services and airline uh, parts manufacturers, and there's not a lot of pricing power in certain instances. For example, he says it doesn't matter to Delta if they buy from Boeing or they buy from Airbus, um, and so they can switch from one thing to another. There's other things that have more pricing power. This is what Ben Carlson said about his trip to Disney. Quote, The thing that shocked me most of all is how big of a moat they have in terms of brands. Not only do they have the reoccurring characters, but all the Marvel people, the Star Wars things, I was blown away by how much Disney has, end quote. And he talked about a presentation Scott Galloway had given about um, how maybe corporate brands may be in decline. But he, he admits that Disney has something else. They really have something deep. And the reason is, is because it's really hard to switch away from Disney. If you want to take your kids on a long-distance vacation to some place where they're going to recognize characters and have engaging meals and enjoy the theming of a place, Disney and Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, has that in spades. Those are the only places you can go to see those things. And so that gives Disney pricing power. Another example, and this is a Berkshire one, is Seas Candy. Seas Candy can raise their prices a little bit each year, and that's key for Dorsey. You have to be able to use, to raise your prices a little bit each year, not exorbitantly. For example, he doesn't have great things to say about Bloomberg terminal rentals, but but Seas Candy can, and, and the reason why is that it's a small cost in a large event. This was something that Dorsey looks for and that we'll get to later on in the podcast. But you have to do your work as an investor because, quote, as an investors, we have a different challenge. We're not stuck with a set of assets of which we need to maximize the value. We can choose from thousands of different sets of assets called companies. So we need more objective characteristics by which we can assess the quality of competitive advantage and then make some judgment about whether a company is likely to have high returns on capital in the future or not, end quote. So Dorsey sees himself, I think, as sort of a, a manager of some kind. And he is almost like a little Warren Buffett, where Warren Buffett has these companies that Berkshire owns, and then the companies send money to Warren, and Warren decides where to deploy the capital. Well, Dorsey has a similar situation, only he's looking for his own set of companies that will return capital to him so that he can allocate it again and again. And in an ideal world, enter this virtuous cycle. Moats are constructed by businesses that make wise choices. Dorsey wants people who have moats and allocate capital smartly. He says, quote, managers are not moats. The smartest manager in the world will not make an airline have the economics of a software company or an asset manager. It's physically impossible, end quote. We have two big ideas. Let's jump into them. Building notes and allocating capital. Depending on where you look, depending on what article you read or the person you listen to, there's a variety of moats that someone can have. In looking into Dorsey's work, I came away with three that we'll focus on in this episode. Intangible assets, high switching costs, and network effects. Intangible assets really comes down to, or... The biggest thing included in that is brands. This is what Dorsey says, quote, The thing with brands is they take constant care and feeding. Brands don't just run themselves. Management teams can try to destroy brands, end quote. 
he gives um, examples in his lectures and in his talks of uh, different brands. But, but the thing to remember about brands, the most important thing to remember, is that brands are capable of changing behavior. Dorsey often cites Sony, a stalwart of electronics, but you have to ask, do you take action on something because it's a Sony? Rory Southern likes to say that brands are a kind of insurance against shit. I remember that when I bought my first Walkman, it was nearly twice as much as the next generic portable tape player, but I wanted it to just work. Now with sites like Wirecutter, maybe brands don't have as much pricing power. Within brands, there's nuances to understand, and that's really true of any investing situation, is you have to understand the nuances of something. You have to have a deep understanding. One nuance of brands is B2B reputation. Now, Dorsey says, quote, you are right, there's a less of an emotional standpoint, but there are sometimes emotional reputational factors. Remember the old quote, you don't get fired for buying IBM. Reputation and brands can matter in a business-to-business -business market as well, end quote. So what he's saying here is that there's career risk if you don't buy the brand. And so brand can be good at that. Um, this is how Rory Sutherland puts the same idea. Quote, there are lots of cases where you need to signal something by making a decision. And it may be the rationality of the decision, which actually prevents you from making a better decision. If I pretend everything is logical, it may not be a really good decision, but if things go wrong, no one can blame me. That's an extraordinary form of corporate insurance, end quote. And uh, in a 2000 talk at the University of Michigan, Charlie Munger said something very similar when he said, quote, coming to business, not as business school graduates, but as people who would own portfolios or securities, we fought like capitalists because we were always in a shareholder mindset. A lot of people running the business think like careerists, and believe me, you got to think like a careerist to a certain extent if you're in a career, but also helps to look at the business strategy problems as though you're an owner. And so my advice to you is never be a careerist so much as you don't see it from the owner's point of view, end quote. So Munger and Sutherland and Dorsey are all circling this idea that when you make a decision in a B2B purchasing instance, you're making it not based on just what you think the best thing is, but there's also this career risk that goes along with it. Another nuance of the value of brand is demonstrated by Tiffany's. Dorsey says that you get a bigger smile if you give something in a Tiffany's bo blue box rather than another blue box. And, and um, it's really interesting because he goes on, quote, we think of Tiffany's as a very expensive brand, but over 40% of their revenue comes from stuff that sells for under 200 bucks, end quote. And Tiffany's may be the best example of taking care of a brand that Dorsey mentions, where we think of Tiffany's as being very fine and ornate and valuable and fancy. But in reality, they sell so much stuff that is silver and they sell so much stuff under 200 bucks that it keeps the business going. Another nuance of brand is Apple. And we'll look at Apple in a different context to Dorsey. But I remember being in graduate school at Ohio University. And I had a joke where the unofficial school uniform was a pair of brown Uggs, a black North Face jacket, and a pair of white Apple headphones. Because you saw so many people wearing that outfit as they walked around campus. And... Apple had a sort of 
brandiness that helped their product, along with some other things. In one of his presentations, Dorsey points out the difference in advertising of Jack Daniels in Russia versus China. He notes that the Russian advertising is very similar to the American advertising, where uh, Jack Daniels is viewed as a rustic, um, get-out-of-the-city kind of a drink. But in China, it's uh, marketed as more of a sophisticated kind of drink. And why is that? Well, it's because the Jack Daniels brand managers understand the nuances of their brand. People in China tend to head to the cities from the country, and then that's where they find their success, rather than going back to the country to blow off steam. So Jack Daniels is marketed different, and that's good brand understanding from the people there. Another nuance of brands is demonstrated by Thai. This is what Dorsey says, quote, Brands are obvious, but it's important to understand what kind of brand you're paying for. Brands can lower search costs. I use Tide because P&G's immense marketing budget has convinced me it works better than anything else. Brands can create positional value. The Rolex watch doesn't tell time any differently than the Mickey Mouse watch as I had as a kid. It's the same time, but what it signals to people is I have a lot of money, end quote. Dorsey calls these social consensus brands, and he goes on to say that Dollar Shave versus Gillette doesn't require social consensus. Wherever you get the best shave is what you should do. But even though the Mickey Mouse watch may keep better time, or maybe the Mickey Mouse face on the Apple Watch keeps better time than a Rolex, those are two totally different things. Clayton Christensen of... Uh, of Harvard has written a lot about disruption theory. He termed disruption theory, and he says that it all starts from understanding what job someone is hiring for. This is what he said on the A16Z podcast. Quote, jobs arise in our lives. When we realize we have a job to do, we have to go out and find something to get the job done. Understanding the job is what we need to understand, not the customer, end quote. The job of wearing a Rolex isn't necessarily to tell the time. The job of wearing a Rolex is to have a Rolex on your wrist. Unlike the job of shaving, the job of shaving doesn't have any signaling. There's no social consensus. And so Dollar Shave has succeeded. In her interview on how I built this, Jen Hyman of Rent the Runway had uh, another articulation of finding out what job people are hiring for. She said, quote, it was a light bulb moment for me because I realized I was having a conversation with my sister about the experience of wearing an amazing dress, of walking into a party, feeling self-confident, feeling beautiful, end quote. So the job wasn't to go shopping. The job wasn't to have a, a certain kind of a label. The job was the feeling. That's what people hire Rent the Runway for. They hire for a feeling. And that's where we can figure out where a brand may or may not be valuable. Another nuance of understanding brand, Dorsey points out, is whether or not a brand changes quickly or slowly. Software, for example, changes fast. Entertainment changes fast. So if you're going to manage those brands, you have to manage them in a fast-changing environment. And you can compare that to beer and candy and soda, which change slowly. And he brings up New Coke, which means we should probably talk about New Coke. New Coke wasn't the disaster that people think it is. It's sort of like the tulip bubble where it stands for something, but the thing that it stands for has sort of outgrown what the actual experience was. In 1975, Pepsi started the Pepsi Challenge marketing campaign. All this was advertisement for the market research. Coke and Pepsi already did. 
In blind test tests for both companies, people liked Pepsi more, and so Pepsi just decided to put that on television. In 1982, Coke introduced Diet Coke in response to Diet Pepsi, and it had a lot of success. And in 1985, they introduced Cherry Coke. Coca-Cola had been tweaking their recipes and making experiments for a long time because they noticed that their market share was starting to stagnate. They still led Pepsi Company, and they still led Pepsi-Cola, but their percentage of share, either internationally or domestically in the United States, was ticking down. So they wanted to do something. something. The company was led by Roberto Goizeta, a former chemist at the company who, beyond just the flavors, invested in Columbia Pictures, which immediately released hits like The Toy, Tootsie, and Gandhi. And soon after that, they released Ghostbusters, so they had a lot of success. This was also the time when movies started to solicit uh, money from companies for product placement. But Coca-Cola said, hey, um, we'll let you rent our memorabilia, or we'll even give it to you for free. So where other companies were paying to have their products in a movie, Coca-Cola was being paid for the Coca-Cola signage. So we have the situation where uh, Coca-Cola is experimenting with different formulas. They're taking risks, and they're having success. In fact, uh, they had good reason. From the book For God, Country, and Coca-Cola, Mark Pendergast wrote this, quote, Roberto Goizeta had every reason for self-congratulation. Since he had assumed the presidency in the spring of 1981, Coca-Cola stock had appreciated 95%, including dividends, more than doubling the performance of the S&P 500 index. The company had recently demonstrated confidence in its own future by repurchasing 6 million shares of common stock. Still, Goizeta felt uneasy. When someone told him that he looked nervous, the Cuban replied, We live nervous. Now he uttered a prophetic warning. There is a danger when a company is doing as well as we are, and that is to think we can do no wrong. I keep telling the organization, we can do wrong, and we can do wrong big. In April of 1985, a shocking nation learned just how right he was. And, of course, that shock turned out to be New Coke, which was a terrible choice. But it wasn't it wasn't awful. They put months of research and work and study and in blind taste tests. People liked New Coke more than they liked Pepsi. And remember, they liked Pepsi more than they liked Coca-Cola. So in April, they released it. By August, Classic Coke was back on the shelves. So we can call New Coke a flop. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that it came from this environment of testing for growth. The opponents to Diet Coke and Cherry Coke and movie theater acquisitions were all wrong. Those were wise capital allocation decisions. Changing Coke was not, but overall, the 1980s were really good for Coca-Cola, and the amount of news and stories and attention that they got may have been a wash in the end anyways. Brands' actions ultimately need to reflect the ecosystem they live in. They shouldn't have changed Coca-Cola, but they were wise to experiment with other flavors. Tiffany's works because they keep the value really high, even though they sell things that are relatively inexpensive. And we can remember that there's more to B2B purchases than just simply um, what the direct comparison is. Another moat is high switching costs, and Dorsey has a really interesting way of thinking about it. He tries to think of what the inputs are. For, <laughs> as an example, there was one 
um, investing class. It looked like just a high school investing class that uh, did a web chat with Dorsey and they recorded it. And one of the students asked him about marijuana stocks. And Dorsey almost immediately jumps to giving uh, his thoughts on Scott's miracle grow. And he says that it's, quote, a damn good business regardless of marijuana, end quote. And it's not so much that he jumps to Scott's miracle grow as to what that signifies. Dorsey is always looking for things that are small inputs into an overall larger product. Uh, in another presentation, this is what he said, quote, Morningstar hosted the CEO of CoStar at their conference. And I remember asking how he thinks about pricing because he has a lot of pricing leverage over customers. He obviously thought about it very carefully. He said, we're interested in long-term profit maximization, not in angering our customer base. I think that's how you have to think about it if you're a business with a product that is critical to a customer's business, where you have enormous pricing power, end quote. You can compare this with like Bloomberg, which Dorsey thinks is way overpriced. They're gouging people, and he doesn't think that that mode is as good as something that is a, uh, a small but important component. Another example of this is, is C's Candy in, in Ohio, where I'm at. It's not C's, it's the Yellow Whitman Sampler. Uh, but the business advantage to both of these candy companies, it's the same. It's something that's only a small part of the overall utility when you need to buy it. A box of chocolates is a pittance for the total Christmas spend. Apple can be another example of this because of the way their small costs incorporate into the larger effect. And, uh, and this is what Dorsey uh, said once about Apple, quote, I'm far less concerned about nice advertising or cool design than I am about anything that increases the switching costs. Anything that actually increases the difficulty I would have in switching from my iPhone to an Android, anything they could do to make that path dependent stronger, that once I have an iPhone, I want the next generation and the next generation. That's what strengthens their moat more than anything else, end quote. This idea of switching costs was the subject of one of Ben Thompson's posts at Stratechery titled Apple's Middle Age. And he, he lists all the different things. These are all Thompson's ideas. For example, the iPad was standalone product, but thanks to Apple's push for unified apps, it immediately rendered more valuable if, Apple already owned an, if an Apple user already owned an iPhone. The Apple TV Again, it was standalone, but thanks for Apple's push for a unified apps and AirPlay protocol, it was more valuable if you owned an iPhone. The Apple Watch only works with an iPhone, which means by definition it can only be sold to existing customers. AirPods work with all phones, but better on the iPhone. And the new product, the HomePod, only works with an iOS device, which means by definition it can be sold to existing Apple customers with Apple Music as a push. And Thompson explains in this article that um, you can stream to your, um, to your Sonos speaker using Bluetooth, and you can stream to this, um, this HomePod, but everything works better. It's all a little tighter if you have Apple devices. And if you can make those interlinked services tighter, that increases the switching cost to go to something else. When I put a poll online, I asked people what the switching costs were for different companies, and, and actually the switching costs for Apple weren't as high as other companies. From 57 votes, over half the people said that switching to a non-Google search engine would be more difficult um, than switching to um, Amazon and Walmart, which, would be, which was the next largest group at about a third. And only three people said that switching from Apple to Samsung would be hard. So Apple has a long road ahead of them if they want to increase their switching costs. I know that 
I've had iPhones for a long time just because uh, the default choice, the status quo bias exists. I'm sure that there's a, a Samsung phone that has a better camera or a better something else, but I know how to use all my apps. I know where all the apps are. I have different things backed up to iCloud. So the switching cost is slowly building over time. What Apple will need to do to have this kind of a moat that Dorsey likes is to increase those faster than people's fluency with technology. The third mode that we're going to look at from Dorsey is network effects, and this is what he says. Quote, the key that people don't realize is that a network effect must be cared for and fed. They don't exist and perpetuate without anything, end quote. And he says, look at market tables, market share, and it's declined because of their lack of investment. Also, um, you want something where the user experience isn't fungible. You want something with high switching costs. <laughs> I remember... Uh, in the early days of Facebook, when I was blogging somewhere, that I didn't understand Facebook because everyone could just have a blog and you could have an RSS reader and you could have tags and there was no reason to have Facebook when all this other technology existed. But, but Facebook came into being and part of the reason that Facebook works so well is because it has this wonderful network effect. Another network effect, and this is another one from Apple, is, is, is the iPod. This is what Dorsey said, quote, When the iPod first came on the market, remember the Zune, sold by Microsoft, was on the market at the same time. In the first year or two of the iPod's existence, that was before iTunes, and the iPod sold reasonably well, but it wasn't a huge hit. Then iTunes came along, and suddenly you could buy songs by the drink, but only if you had an iPod. Hockey stick growth. If you're a music publisher, why do you want to be on iTunes? Because you have all those people with iPods out there. Why as a user do you want to buy an iPod? Because it's the only thing I can use to buy songs one by one legally. This was before they shut down Napster. It's a network effect for Apple, end quote. And it's the same thing for the App Store. The App Store is really what pushed the iPhone forward. These are areas that Brian Arthur called, and we covered via Instagram in a previous podcast episode, the increasing returns economy. These are the winner-take-all. These are the platform business models. These are the modern monopolies. And just because you have a lot of locations, just because you have a lot of nodes, doesn't mean you have a network effect. Dorsey points out that Western Union doesn't have a network effect because it's more of a radial network. He says that people would send money from uh, Mexico City to Chicago, and they would send money from uh, Belize to Chicago, but nobody would send money from Belize to Mexico City. There were some paths that were much more well-worn than others, and that's not what you need to have a network effect. And the best, the, best, the best example is Facebook. Facebook is the pinnacle of all this, where Facebook uh, uh, just stands in the middle where the people who produce the content, your updates, your baby photos, things like that, your recipes that you shared, um, and then on the other side, your friends and family who read those things. This is what Dorsey says, quote, the best thing is you monetize content you don't pay to create, and that would be Facebook, end quote. Dorsey, I'm sure, would like to have more platforms like Facebook, and sometimes these modern monopolies need a kickstart. When Jack Ma reflected on eBay's failure and his success, he said that, quote, you have to prove the market, end quote. Uber subsidized drivers, and Airbnb helped people take photographs early on. For these three network effects, the most important thing here is to get a 
good horse. This is what Dorsey says. Quote, the key here is to get a good horse. It's not that the jockey is irrelevant, but it's that the jockey is on, if one jockey is on a goat, he's not going to make a lot of money or win many races, end quote. Managers matter in the context of a moat. And, and this, is, this is just a rehashing of the famous Warren Buffett quote. quote. When a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, it is the reputation of the business that remains intact. End quote. Uh, Dorsey said uh, this about moats and advantages. Quote, the biggest misconception that most people have is that they think bigger is better and also that managers are supermen. A lot of people confuse size, whether being a larger business or having a large market share, with having a strong competitive position, and I would like to point out that the strong counterexamples of General Motors and Compaq. It's a good example of businesses that were bigger but not necessarily better. And also people often think that managers can do anything, that if you have a great manager, that matters a lot more than a business's competitive advantage." End quote. You really want something that is a good business from the fundamentals. You don't want something that's a flash in the pan. You don't want something that's a fad. You don't want something that's easily going to be replaced. And be careful around technology. This is what Dorsey says. Quote, I would never view a superior technology as being in an economic moat. There are a lot of smart engineers in the world, and what one can invent, another can improve upon. There is absolutely no question about that. But when you have a technology company that becomes an industry standard, and we can say that about AutoCAD for the computer-aided design industry, or in that way, uh, Photoshop for the digital design industry, at that point, switching costs from going from product A to product B become very high, even if product B is much better. So that lock-in effect is quite strong, end quote. There will always be new technology paradigms. In another episode of uh, Ben Thompson's podcast, this is episode 142, he talks about how paradigm shifts create disruption. When the computer was introduced, Microsoft came to dominate. And, but, but the reason Microsoft couldn't dominate the internet, which was dominated by Google, or the mobile market, which was dominated by Apple and Samsung is because they dominated the PC market. What makes you good at one thing inherently makes you weak at another thing. This is central to Clayton Christensen's disruption theory, and it's a recurring theme in Ben Thompson's writings and his podcasts, is that you can't be great at everything. And Apple and Amazon become conflated because they both start with A and they're tech companies and they have huge market caps. But when you look at their companies, they're totally different situations. So why are moats so valuable? Why do we spend 30 minutes talking about these, these things and, and, and breaking it down into the three areas of high switching cost network effects and brands? And, and there's a reason they're so valuable. This is what Dorsey says. Quote, the value is largely dependent on reinvestment opportunities. The ability to reinvest cash at a high incremental rate of return is a very valuable moat. If you can plow cash back into the business and continue to take market share, expand your addressable market, and if you have a long runway ahead of you, that makes a business worth paying a pretty high multiple for, end quote. You can compare this with the spice market. Um, Dorsey often comes back to McCormick, and he says they own the spice market. They have a huge market share, but, uh, uh, quote, but the consumption of turmeric is not going up 20% next year, so McCormick has to pay out most of that money. The moat is valuable in creating stability and confidence, but it doesn't say, I want to pay 30 times earnings for this business because they can't reinvest it back in, end quote. So <sighs> moats are valuable because if we think about our marginal dollar, 
if we think about becoming an entrepreneur or investing in an index or finding a business with a great moat, we find those great moat businesses because they have the highest return on capital for our marginal dollar. And so, how do we figure out how to allocate capital? What, what makes someone a good capital allocator? And this was much harder to define. Um, the moats are easy to identify. We had three categories that are easier to understand with very distinct and vivid examples. You can probably even, even picture that blue Tiffany's box in your mind, but capital allocation is a little bit harder to put our finger on. This is what Dorsey says. Uh, about figuring out how to identify good capital allocators. You ask them questions and then, quote, if they don't immediately give an answer that indicates a true passion for what they do, then it's not the guy. The really incredible individuals love what they do and can't imagine doing anything else. And that passion, that joy is evident when you speak to them, end quote. He, um, <laughs> he's got this great picture in a presentation of um, the Joker from The Dark Knight Rises standing in front of a pile of money that's on fire. And um, over the Joker, someone is very crudely photoshopped in the letters CEO. And, uh, and on the pile of cash is photoshopped uh, investing outside your moat. And, and that's, what, that's what basically what you see. He says, if you invest money outside your moat, outside your circle of confidence, outside your circle of competence, it's basically like setting money on fire. This is how he says that. Uh, quote, you frequently see CEOs have a good but slower growing business that has a great moat and high returns on capital. And then they say, my gosh, we still have to grow. Then they take the capital and they basically set it on fire, investing in a business where they have no competitive advantage. Like when Sintas moved from uniform rental to fire safety and document management. Stupid. Cisco moving into set-top boxes and buying the flip phone. Stupid. Garmin, the GPS company, trying to expand into handsets and competing with Nokia and Samsung. Stupid. End quote. Good capital allocation, according to Dorsey, is planting seeds, not protecting the dying. Google buying YouTube was good because that was a natural extension. Google searched websites. YouTube lets you search videos. Facebook buying Instagram. That's still within their circle of competence. We're going to sell ad against content other people are going to create and consume. Uh, another clue Dorsey says to look for is, is look for the owner-operator. This is what he says. Quote, I do think you see it less likely in the owner-operator business and more likely with hired hands. End quote. That is people making terrible purchases and, and basically burning cash. Two books that provide nice vignettes of good decision makers are um, Intelligent, and Intelligent Fanatics by Sean Idings and Ian Castle and The Outsiders by William Thorndike Jr. Uh, Dorsey said the Thorndike book was, quote, an awesome book on capital management, end quote. So, so in looking over my notes, what is common for outsiders and fanatics? And, and both outsiders and fanatics are thrifty. Thorndike wrote, quote, there's an apparent inverse correlation between the construction of elaborate new headquarter buildings and investor returns, end quote. Both outsiders and fanatics are independent. When other newspapers were emerging and making terrible acquisitions, Catherine Graham kept the post mostly away from those terrible choices. Both outsiders and fanatics also argue well. Thorndike wrote, quote, as a group, they were at their core rational and pragmatic, agnostic and clear-eyed, end quote. One outsider that uh, was in the book, Caesar Schweitzer, said that meetings were like, quote, wrestling matches conducted in a constructive con collegial way, end quote. There's more from those books that we could address, but to really get an understanding, you need, you need to go and visit them yourself.
Uh, beware of mergers, Dorsey said. That's a red flag. Quote, M&A should serve strategic goals like we talked about Facebook and Instagram, Google and YouTube. Not paper over strategic failures. M&A is a learned skill. It's not something you do just because a great PowerPoint lands on your desk from Merrill Lynch, end quote. Um, another, another thing that makes this tricky is that we don't see incentives lined up. Good capital allocators have capital allocation incentives. This is what Dorsey says. Quote, I see a, an ROI component in maybe 15% of the pay packages I look at. If they're being compensated based on earnings per share and they can just buy it, they will. Managers who are paid handsomely to misallocate capital will do so, end quote. So uh, if, if, if poorly aligned incentives is a red flag, then a green flag, a good looking thing according to Dorsey, is lumpy looking buybacks. That tends to signal um, better companies. You also don't want to um, see uh, a capital allocator who um, issues a dividend and also raises equity in the same year. That's another red flag. So let's put some of this together and look at HQ trivia. Patrick O'Shaughnessy asked Dorsey see about the HQ Trivia app, and, and um, he offers a guess on the spot about monetizing via ads, and it sounded like uh, Dorsey wasn't that familiar, and, and if you weren't aware, I wasn't, HQ has tried to raise money at a $100 million valuation, and from what I can tell from the news articles as of February 2018, it doesn't look like that kind of valuation is what they're going to get. There's also some uh, pushback against Peter Thiel being involved or his company being involved in, the, uh, in leading the round in some way, which uh, has turned some people off. Um, but, but why or how can HQ become a $100 million company um, rather than Heelys, which is, remember those shoes with little wheels in the heel? Um, that was a company that was worth um, more more than a hundred million dollars, or or GoPro. And so, how can how can HQ become a company with a moat like Dorsey looks for? Well, option one is they can become a brand like Tiffany's. Dorsey calls these social consensus brands. So Tiffany's and Rolex, it matters the name on the box. If HQ can be a game show quiz app thing on your phone, then uh, then then that can work. If it can if it can become the thing, if it turns into a a really um, a special app on your phone, it could succeed. HQ could try to raise switching costs. Some brands succeed because they reduce decision friction. Um, Tide works because have you seen the laundry detergent aisle at the store? There's there's so many choices. Even with Tide, there's so many choices. But uh, unfortunately for HQ, there's also app store games like Q Trivia that already exist. And the, the switching cost from one app to another is almost zero. So whereas Tide can buy their way into Mindshare, it would be really hard uh, for HQ. Uh, they, could, they could try to establish network effects. Uh, the best networks, though, are interactive rather than radial. So Venmo works so well because I can send money to anyone and anyone can send me to you and send money to me. Uh, HQ can succeed if they incorporate this interaction somehow. I haven't used the app in a while, but if there was some way to connect my social network and I could have an ongoing relationship with people through the app, then that would be the kind of network effect that Dorsey looks for. Um, a non-Dorsey possibility that is, is sort of like brands is something that um, Q. Harrison Terry wrote about. And he compares using the HQ Trivia app to being like a DJ. And there's this shared experience we get. And, and it's, it's a really this feeling, this emotional tug. 
This is why movie theaters are better when there's more people. We, we laugh more the more people laugh. It's why America's Got Talent captivated our family last summer. Recently, I finished a blog post on Ted Sarandos when he talked with Mark Andreessen at A16Z. And Sarandos had a lot of really good answers to Andreessen's questions. But one thing that um, it felt like he kind of slipped through his fingers or he didn't have a good answer for was, was live events. And he, he noted that sports are so dang expensive because wholesale transfer pricing. But um, there's a, a collective experience. And he said, well, you can just watch, have the collective experience on demand. And he said that's part of what made making a murder murderer so successful at the end of uh, 2017 was people were home for Christmas and they watched together. So there is that collective experience, but to have a live collective experience, um, Netflix doesn't really know how to do that. And so maybe that's something that HQ Trivia can capitalize on. To recap, after years of research, Pat Dorsey wants to find castles with moats and battlements staffed by efficient capital allocators. Those moats are often established by great brands like Tiffany's, where the light blue box means you'll pay more, by network effects like Facebook, where more users mean a better experience, or by high switching costs, especially those that don't cost much compared to the overall experience. Once a moat is built, capital allocators continue to reinvest the money on intelligent things. Dorsey wants capital allocators to think about their marginal dollars in the same way he does. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.